In her book entitled Mom, God Told Me to Kill, Dr. Catherine Ramsland reports, the two older boys, ages 6 and 12, hand-lettered their signs for Mother's Day. Thank God for mothers, and mother's love grows here, and set them out near the front door while the 14-month-old baby watched their labor of love. This home belonged to a seemingly perfect family, a loving husband and wife, devoted to each other and their three sons, planning a big family barbecue for Mother's Day. Overnight, a stunning tragedy struck. The devoutly religious mother, with no history of mental illness, acted on a secret delusion. From several signs she saw during the day, she believed that God had ordered her to sacrifice her sons, just as he had commanded Abraham in the Old Testament to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. This story is a terrifying tale of a sudden descent into unthinkable madness. Her trial created a dramatic legal controversy over whether a person who kills because she truly believed God commanded it can be found guilty of murder. Today, she is working toward the unsettling possibility of eventual release, and surprisingly, she might achieve it. This woman, Deanna is her name, killed her sons, stating, God told me to do it. And you say, wow, that's extreme. That's really bizarre. Obviously, God didn't tell her to kill her children. But this is a phrase that is so common in Christendom today. Well, God told me. How do you know? God told me. How did God tell you? Well, he just did. I just know it was him. How do you know it was him? I just know. And then you'll hear this from maybe those who run in those circles who are a tad more conservative, and they'll say, well, it has to be verified by Scripture. The story of Deanna was verified by Scripture. Because as you know, God commanded that Abraham kill his son Isaac. And so the idea that God told me is the wild card. It's the get-out-of-jail card. It's the wild card for anything in life. God told me, therefore, it must be true. And how do you argue with that? Many times people have said, well, God told me. It's only ever happened once, but I know it was God. Well, how do you know it was God? Well, I just know. It had to be him. And they'll say things like, well, it was a good thing. Therefore, I know that it was of the Lord. If you go with me in your minds back to the book of Genesis, you recall that Satan attempted, by way of becoming a serpent, to persuade Adam and Eve to question God's word. Hath God really said? And as you know, if you've looked closely at that text, you know that what Eve reported back to Satan didn't really sound all that wrong, but it wasn't what God had said. Eve reported that God had told them not to eat it, but also not to touch it. Would it be wrong to not touch it? No, that's a good thing. But it's not what God said. So the moment you start adding to the Scripture, which, by the way, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 says will make a person a liar, that's the very moment that you begin to open up the floodgates a tiny bit at a time. And especially if you tribute something to the Lord that's seemingly good. But that's where these catastrophic tragedies begin. 
someone who does something that's absolutely crazy. They've gotten into the habit of saying, God told me. And therefore, they justify all kinds of things. In specific, related to our text this morning, they will violate the law of man. And they will say, well, God told me I serve a higher authority. Let me suggest to you that there is not as much controversy or conflict with regard to obeying God and obeying man as some people would like to think. Again, many times the idea that God is the supreme authority, that he is the highest authority, many times leads people to think that therefore they never have to obey man. The fact is that God has commanded us to obey man. From our text this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, we read, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. As free people, we're going to talk about what that means. As free people, it is God's will that you submit to the government, silence slanderers, and serve him. So last week, the mandate the motive and the measure. This week, point number four, the message. What is the message? Now, don't confuse this with the primary message of Christianity. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the message that is sent by submission. So really, in these points, we're talking about how they relate to submission, the mandate of submission, the motive behind submission and the measure of that submission right now point number four the message of that submission what message is sent what's its impact what's its result verse 15 says for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men it's a deafening message It's a silencing message when godly people respond to the command of God to obey the government, to obey the king, to obey those who are in authority. It sets us apart from the world who obeys authority when people are looking and does everything to avoid it when people are not looking. And eventually that rises to the surface. And you know the difference between those who are really committed to obeying with the right heart attitude and those who are committed to obeying only to avoid consequences. Uh, Ken read to you this morning from Acts 24. I want to take you just for a minute back to verse 13 of Acts 24 where Paul says, Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. Paul was accused of things he hadn't done. And this isn't hyper-defensiveness when you make that declaration. If you live with a clear conscience with regard to the commands of the Scripture, and as far as you know, you've obeyed the commands of God, there's nothing wrong with pointing out the fact, I haven't done anything wrong. Uh, I've obeyed the law to the the degree that I understand it. And this is all that Paul was doing here. Paul wanted it to be known that the accusations that were made against him were not really the issue. It was the motive behind the accusations that Paul was reporting of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the hope of the Christian. 
And that was why the Jews wanted him taken off the scene. They wanted him out of the picture. They wanted him imprisoned. They wanted him killed. And Paul said, that's really the issue. So as you know, he went through a series of trials before various governing authorities, all of which displayed their respect for him because, in fact, he had obeyed the law. And at one point, Paul didn't obey the law. Why? Because the law was telling him to stop talking about Jesus. And Paul said, I'm not going to do that. I have to obey the Lord. I have to speak of the Lord. I have to speak of my Savior. I love my Savior. I can't stop talking about him. So if you need to lop my head off in mid-sentence, then do it. Because I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus. This was a deafening message. As you know, Peter and John were released when their conduct was honoring to the Lord, but dishonoring to governmental, governmental authorities. They had obeyed the law. In Acts 4, verse 18, we read, And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. Well, in our text this morning, in verse 15, we see that this is the will of God. You've asked that question, what is God's will for my life? Here you go. Here's your answer. It is God's will for your life as we see in this text that by doing right, by doing right, you will silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter does not say here, by doing right and standing up with a bullhorn and declaring to the rest of the world, I'm doing right, look at me. He doesn't say that. He says, by doing right, it's your conduct. All throughout the book of 1 Peter, you see Peter calling us to godly conduct motivated by godly heart attitudes. And here Peter shows us the effect. He shows us the message that will be sent from godly conduct. As I said, it's God's will. It is God's will that by your conduct, not by your persuasive speech, that foolish talk and false accusations will be silenced. This ties in with the motive back in verse 13 where we are told to submit for God's sake told to submit for God's sake. So this is about God's will. What's God's will for your life? Don't look for things that aren't in the Scripture if you want to know what God's will is. The only thing that you can know for certain that is God's will for your life is what you see in the Scripture. But God told me what His will for my life is. Well, we've already talked about the dangers of that kind of thinking. Some have said, well, if it happens, then we can say it's God's will. Is that really how you want to live and operate? You really want to live in retrospect and just deal with what God's will is by looking back on it and saying, well, it must have been God's will. You want to say that about every sin you've ever seen someone commit? The heinousness of things that take place in the world? You really want to operate that way? Well, God is sovereign. Therefore, if it happened, it's God's will. You don't want to live that way. That's so unfeeling and so unhelpful. God has decreed that all things will come to pass. But He has also exposed to us His moral will. 
His moral commands, that to which He has called us, those things to which we are called to obedience, to obey Him for His sake, because this is God's will. One of the premier passages with regard to God's will is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because God hates you and doesn't want you to enjoy life. No, because He loves you and wants you to be protected for that which is best. Being protected from all things along the way that would destroy what God has for you that is actually best. He's given that prohibition, and it is His will, and He says it's His will, so you can know it's His will. So if you obey His will, if you subject yourself to His will, He will provide for you that which is best in His proper timing. In 1 Peter 3, verse 14, Peter says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... You are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. He's saying the same thing there as he's saying in this text this morning. By doing good, by living a life of godly conduct, there will be those who are interested in why you have the hope that you have. You are not called to go into society and blast people with a gospel they're not interested in. You are called to live in society in such a way that brings glory to Jesus Christ that people would look at you and say that conduct is different. Clearly there's a heart attitude. There is a hope that's deeply entrenched in who you are. Please tell me why. It's not to say that you can't, in running into a person on the street, or even if you decide to go out into the streets and declare the gospel, it's not to say that that's wrong to do. That's not wrong. If you believe the Lord has moved on your heart to do that, do it. But don't be obnoxious. Be winsome. Be of such conduct that people would really want to know why you have the hope that you have. In Titus chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. This is where we get that beautifully rich foundational passage on men discipling men and women discipling women. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. He's already told Titus to tell the, uh, the older women to teach younger women to be sensible. Here he's saying the same thing, basically. Tell young men to be sensible. Disciple them to be sensible. Verse 7, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Many times we think that people are angry with us, they slander us, they say bad things about us because we love Jesus. You know, they hate me because they know I'm a Christian. The reality is that Fearing God and honoring God and pleasing God does not necessarily always mean that you're going to run people off. It's probably less likely than what we would like to think. Here, we show that in discipleship, what's happening is that godly men are training other men who desire to be godly men to have such conduct that the world would look at it and respect you. You know, if you're the constant burr under the saddle, that's probably not godliness. 
That's probably not Christ-likeness. If you're the one who's always arguing against everyone else, that's probably not representative of the person of Jesus Christ and what he has called you to. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, for those who would be leaders in the church, those who would be elders, and by the way, you know this, the standard for elders and deacons is no higher than the standard for everyone else in the church. There's simply a higher accountability to that standard. But it's the same standard, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Can't be a leader in the church if you've got a bad reputation outside the church. Why? Because you have to have a good reputation outside the church. Why? So that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil, Right? so that he won't fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. He'll be used of the devil within the church and outside the church to defame the church and its head. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 17, we read, Tell us then, what do you think? This was an attorney attempting to test Jesus or to, to trick Jesus. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Um, this is not going to be found in that book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> Why are you testing me, you, you Pharisees, you, which wasn't a bad word in their mind, but you hypocrites, you two-faced people, you actors. Show me the coin used for the poll tax, Jesus said. Show me the coin. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. He silenced them with his conduct. You know, he wasn't there to bring down the government. Sad was that to the Judaistic unbelievers who wanted him to do that, to come and free them from tyranny, free them from Rome. We will be the captors. We will be the victors when the Messiah comes. And he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Obey the government. If it's God's, give it to God. If it's Caesar's, give it to Caesar. And what did they do? They went away. They had nothing left to argue. You can only assume that they expected him to say something that would violate the law that would lead to Caesar's justice being played out against him. He, knowing that the Word of God requires that we submit to the law of God, delivered a message, and the message was, sit down and be quiet, because I'm not here to destroy the government. The government has its role. The government has its place. And by not even addressing that in so directly as they wanted him to address it, he simply said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, regarding this, this issue of whether or not you can please God and please man, Think of it this way. If you will please God, then certainly your conduct will at least have the potential to be pleasing to man. You please the highest authority, the one with the highest standard. If man has any sense at all about him, then he's going to be pleased by your conduct if it's pleasing to the Lord. And we see this distilled quite well, as you can imagine, in the book of Proverbs. Many times the Proverbs takes a whole lot of theology and just boils it down and, and then kind of blasts us with it in a very palatable and easy to understand, a very clear and concise way. Here you go. In Proverbs 3, verse 3, 
Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. That's the command. Stick to kindness and truth, loving kindness and, and truth. Those kind of the bookends of what uh, we're being told to devote ourselves to. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Keep them with you. Keep them in you. Uh, eat them. Enjoy them. Depend upon them. Uh, reflect the reality that kindness and truth are yours and live in such a way that they are. Why? Verse 4. In Proverbs uh, 3, verse 4. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. It shouldn't be your goal when you walk out of your front door every morning saying, today I'm going to please God and I don't care who hates me. I don't care who I make mad because I'm going to please God. You're probably not pleasing God with that attitude. But the message is one that silences the ignorance of foolish men, because there will be those who have slanderous thinking and slanderous comments about you who are ignorant in their foolishness. But your role is not to go around every place and fix it. Well, are you, who are you talking to? Who have you been talking to lately? Have they been, been talking about me? They say something about me? Have you been talking about me? You know, running around and just doing everything you can to put out every tiny little forest fire that you think might discredit you, but instead being willing to live in such a way that people would respect you whether we're talking about in the church or in the community, the reality is that this is God's will, that you operate this way by doing right. And the context for us, at least at this point, is by doing right and obeying the government. Number five, point number five. The mindset. The mindset of submission. We've looked at the mandate of submission, the motive the measure, the message that is sent with submission, and now the mindset. You know, what should I be thinking about? Well, what, sh- what should be going on in my mind in an effort to do God's will and obey the government? Verse 16 says, act as free men. This is your English translation, or at least it's pretty close to your English translation. It says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil but use it as bond slaves of God. Now, there are three imperative verbs in this passage in your English translation in the Greek. There are none. This is not a command. It's an assumption. Peter is not telling you what to do here. He is assuming that you do this. Let me read it to you as it would be literally translated from the Greek into the Hebrew. Uh, As I pointed out, there are no finite verbs in the verse. There's no command. It actually would read, As free men, not using your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves of God. Two participles. There's not even three participles that are uh, converted into verbs, active finite verbs that are imperatives or commands to tell you what to do. They're participles that assume that this is how you operate. Let me read it again. As free men, not using your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves of God. If you'll look at your translation closely, you'll see that those terms that are those imperative verbs, those commands to do something, you'll see that those are in italics. For the most part, when we use italics, we're using it for emphasis. But in your Bible, whether it's your written or an online translation, you'll see that italics are intended to help you see that that word is not there in the original manuscript. It's to be fair, it's to be honest. Why is that? Why wouldn't Peter command that? I think better to ask, why 
why would he say it exactly the way he says it? And the fact is, Peter is assuming at this point that he's talking to Jewish and Gentile believers. He's talking to people who have proven that they love the Lord. And he tells them, you are free men. Now, what kind of freedom is he talking about here? I think no better place than John 8 to look at Jesus' description of this freedom to understand how we should be thinking. What is the mindset? We should be thinking as free people. In John 8, starting with verse 31, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So that's kind of the intro. That should be intriguing. That should garner interest in the the listener, whether you're reading the passage or in the day of the religious leaders listening to Jesus speak. He says, the truth will make you free. I didn't know I was in prison. I didn't know that I was enslaved. And that would be the honest statement of the unbeliever. He is enslaved. He doesn't know it. He is imprisoned. He does not realize it. He just knows he's got issues. He hears the Word of God. He doesn't like it. Jesus points out, if you're disciples of mine, you will continue in my Word. That's how people will know that you are disciples of mine, because you continue in my Word, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 33, they answered him, We're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see the antagonistic, uh, rejecting response of the religious leaders. We're not, we don't need freedom. We're Abraham's descendants. We're Israel. We're national Israel. We're in the family. We don't need you to tell us about freedom. Why would you say that? Why would you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, stop there for a minute. Who does that include? Everyone except the speaker. Everyone who commits sin. Now, what would the Pharisees have you believe about them? That they didn't commit sin. That's what made them Pharisees. They needed the book of 1 John desperately, which plainly says, he who says he has not sinned is a liar. And by the way, many people will say, of course I'm a sinner. Everyone's born a sinner. And then when you begin to ask questions about particular sin, oh, no, I don't, I've never done that. I don't do that. What about this? No, I don't do that. What about this? Don't I? Well, what do you do? Oh, I'm a sinner. Well, how? Well, I don't know. <laughs> they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. The father, father Abraham. We're children of Abraham. We're, we're children of God. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, It's a sincere effort on Jesus' part to show his sincerity. He says it twice. Sincerely, sincerely, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Sin is your master. He says the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. You need to be freed by the Son. Can you imagine how horribly offensive that would have been to them, saying, Abraham is our father? Now, it's in this passage. It's in John 8, where they say to him, you know the question, the big question they ask him? Who are you? Why do they ask him that? Because he's starting to sound like he thinks he's somebody. So the very next verse, who are you? 
Fast forward to verse 58, and this is where Jesus seals his own imminent death. And he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. He picked up stones to kill him, and he escaped them in that moment. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the one who can set the imprisoned ones free. They didn't want to believe that because they didn't want to believe that they were imprisoned. They didn't want to believe that their sin actually held them. They didn't want to believe Genesis 4, which declares that sin crouches at the doorway. When you leave your doorstep every morning, when you walk out, sin is at your ankles. And by the way, it was creeping around in your house already. They don't want to believe that about themselves. They, they're concerned about what people think about them. They're concerned about reputation more than they are character. So free from what? Free from what? Well, again, verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am the Son, that I am the one who can and will free you. Again, this is verse 24. I said to you that you will die in your sins. I told you that. I warned you about that. And unless you believe in me, you will die in that condition. So freed from sin. Freed from sin, specifically. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. If you do believe in me, you won't. Go back to verse 12 in John 8. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Freedom from darkness. Freedom from clouded inability to really make sense of anything that actually makes sense. I call this the junior high fog. <laughs> I remember those days when I, I, you know, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew that I couldn't make sense of anything. I, I was well aware of the fact that you know, I was no longer the child who was given you know, so much liberty to act and do whatever you want uh, that there was almost no consequence. Uh, and now I'm being expected to you know, act like a human being. I don't really know how. I call that the junior high fog. That's what it was for me anyway. But this fog is is blinding. Jesus will set the person free from that blindedness. He will give them eyes that see. He will give them ears that hear. But the trouble is, in so many churches today, truth is not being taught. It is delivered in such a way that it sounds palatable. It tickles the ears of the hearers, and they walk away thinking, oh, that's me. Yeah, I like those things. And there is never enough depth in the teaching that actually looks at what the Bible says for the person to be offended and realize that he's blind blind and deaf and dead and dead in his sins and in darkness. He needs the light. Jesus says, I'll free you from that. But the person who comes to the word of God, the person who comes to the church of God and says, I, I, I'm not blind. I'm not in the darkness. I'm not imprisoned. I don't need this. That's the person who most needs the gospel. That is the person who most needs the liberating power of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And yet he is the person who least understands it and least believes it. In fact, he doesn't believe it. He is convinced he's fine. I got my Bible. I got God. I'm good. And he's deceived. Jesus will set a person free from that deceptive darkness. 
Go back with me in John 8 to verse 1. But Jesus went to the mountain of olives. Early in the morning, He came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to Him. And He sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to Him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him. You see the insincerity of those who want to trip Jesus up to expose his inability or his misunderstanding, his lack of knowledge, his lack of wisdom. It's constant. It's just repeated all the time. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus frees those who believe in him from the penalty of sin. The Old Testament in which a woman was required to be executed for her sin was an expression of God's justice. And in the New Covenant, God hasn't changed his mind. It's a different dispensation. He handles things differently. The person who says that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever, but ignores the reality that God handles things, he manages things differently throughout human history, has ignored the reality that you see him handling things differently throughout the Scripture. He's not contradicting himself. He required that a person caught in adultery be executed so that in the New Testament era, grace would reign. There's no less seriousness, though, about sin. So Jesus, when he says the truth will set you free, free from sin, free from darkness and deception, free from the penalty of law, he also then says to the woman, go and sin no more, freeing her from the power of sin. It's so easy to quote that passage and say, well, Jesus says go and sin no more. He doesn't judge. He does judge. It's exactly what he's doing. The evidence of whether or not you have freely received truth and grace will be that you will desire to sin no more. Go and sin no more. Jesus, who liberates the sinner from his sin, doesn't only liberate them from their sin and from the penalty of sin and from the deception of sin, but from the power of sin. And that's evident throughout the book of First Peter. Be holy as I am holy. Be holy for I am holy, the Lord says through Peter. Go from now on, sin no more. You are not freed from the commands of God when you are freed from your sin. In Titus 2, verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. How does a a person become disregardable? 
How does a person become forgettable? How does a person arrive at the place where he's got no impression on people? He's got no lasting impact on people. He becomes the antinomian. He becomes the person who is not committed to the law of God. He says, the law of God no longer applies to me. I don't need to obey the commands of God because we live under grace. We don't live under law. There are things in the law of God that you are required to uphold from the Old Testament and things that you are not. Why? Because God operates differently in different dispensations, and he can do that. It's not confusing. It's not a moving target. But God has declared and determined exactly what he would believe would be right and best, and he can do that in his proper timing. What about the Ten Commandments? Are you required to obey the Ten Commandments? Yes, all but one of them. Number four. The fourth commandment says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male and your female servant of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." The Sabbath day was the day set apart for the people of God in the Old Testament era to worship and worship alone. And that was God's decree in that time. And unfortunately, there are those who worship on Sunday who will tell you that, yes, you have to obey all the Ten Commandments. Well, then what are you doing working on Sunday? Why is it that we don't adhere to the Fourth Commandment? In Colossians chapter 2, Paul gives us tremendous insight into why we don't need to hold to the Sabbath any longer. Now let me tell you that this is one area where we as a Reformed Baptist church differ from most Reformed Baptist churches. Most Reformed Baptist churches are Sabbatarian, meaning that they believe that the new Sabbath is Sunday. I believe there's absolutely no reason in the text of Scripture to believe that Saturday somehow became Sunday. Sunday is Sunday, Saturday is Saturday, the Sabbath was Saturday. God rested not because he was tired, but because it was time to stop and establish that there would be a day for his people to set aside and keep it holy and not work and only worship him. That's what the day was for. In the same way, the uh, Levitical laws that require uh, dietary restrictions, you're not held to that. Jesus declared all foods clean. You can eat grasshoppers if you want to. I don't recommend it. But you can eat whatever you want because Jesus has declared all foods clean. But in Colossians chapter 2, Paul distills this for it and makes, us, makes it really easy for us. Colossians 2 verse 16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to christ the substance that's which is substantial they were a shadow the sacrificial system was a shadow the sabbath idea was a shadow of what would come why then do we gather on sundays because according to revelation 1 it's the lord's day that's why we call it the lord's day doesn't mean you can't call it sunday but don't call it the sabbath because it's not by the way, my great-grandfather, who was a fire and brimstone Presbyterian minister, who was also a farmer, inadvertently killed his best pig on a Sunday, according to my mom. Isn't that humorous? 
You know, so the whole idea, Presbyterians, covenantal, right? The whole idea is that you, you celebrate the Sabbath. So one Sunday, I don't know what had happened, but for whatever reason, his schedule got squeezed down. He decided he had to do a little work on the farm, and he had to, you know, sadly report to his wife and others that he had unintentionally murdered his best sow. It's a funny family story. It's not really helpful this morning, but... Uh, <laughs> The, the truth is, you can see how misguided thinking can result in sadness that should never happen. I mean, eat the bacon, enjoy it, okay? But when it comes to food, Sabbath day, we're not held to those things. If a command is repeated in the New Testament from the Old Testament, then you're held to it. This is why we don't tithe. And by the way, tithing was never required of the Old Testament people that they give for the purpose of the people of the Lord. It was a tax. It was a governmental national tax. You and I should be giving out of free will. That's what we're told from the book of Exodus. We'll look at that here in the not-too-distant future. That As the tabernacle was being built, there was a call to give according to your own free will, as you desire, as you decide. You give what you think this is worth. So the way Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9 is this really comes down to what you think of the indescribable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how your giving ought to be determined, not by some legalistic standard set by a national tax in the Old Testament that's not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. It's not to say that the New Testament turns the Old Testament on its ear. It doesn't. It really is an outflow of the Old Testament. But there were things in the Old Testament era that had their purpose. They had their time. They had a time clock on them, and that time clock ran out. And the New Testament shows us that which we are to adhere to and to do so wholeheartedly. They were freed from circumcision. You see in the book of Galatians, many of you remember when we were in the book of Galatians, that Paul freed those who were committed to the legalism of circumcision by saying circumcision means nothing, whether circumcision or uncircumcision. It doesn't mean anything. It's not an issue. But there were those, the Judaizers, those of the religion of the circumcision, that's what they called themselves, they were committed to the idea that you had to be circumcised to be in the family of God, and that was never true. Abraham wasn't circumcised until 13 years after he came to know the Lord. Circumcision was a sign. It was a reflection of the heart of the parents that the child was to be dedicated to the Lord himself, but it was never required in the same way that baptism is not required for your salvation. It is a sign of your salvation. So this freedom that we experience is freedom from the slavery of sin, but it's freedom from the slavery of legalism. The person that holds you to legalistic requirements is not in it for your better good. He or she is in it either at the very best out of a misunderstanding of the text and flow of Scripture or for his or her own self-advancement. F.C. Cook, regarding the matter of using your freedom as a covering for evil, says this, Judaizers claimed exemption for human law. Gentile sophists confounded liberty with libertinism and held that grace implied deliverance from the restraints and penalties of divine law. There are penalties 
for disobeying the law. There are consequences for disobeying the Lord. But the Judaizers wanted to believe that somehow they were exempt from certain requirements within the law as they picked and chose them. J. Ramsey Michaels says, when freedom becomes the believer's watchword, well, we're free. You know, that's, they get everything back to that idea of freedom. I'm free. I'm free to do what I want. When the believer um, chooses the idea of freedom as his watchword or his buzzword, there is as much danger of antinomianism. And again, that term antinomianism, it's a term you need to know. The term uh, nomianism from the Greek term namos, which means law, anti-law. So the antinomian is the person who says, we don't have to obey the law of God. We have Jesus. We don't obey the law. So the antinomian here is spoken of. The watchword there is as much danger of antinomianism in relation to the laws of the state or the customs of Roman society as there is in relation to the laws of God. So this person denies the reality that the laws of God are important. The laws of man are important. God says obey the laws of man. The person who says I don't have to obey the laws of man is just as much an antinomian as the person who says I don't have to obey the laws of God. This is Peter's whole point here. You you must obey the laws of man. If you don't obey the laws of man, you are disobeying the law of God. He says use your freedom as bond slaves of God. Don't use it as a covering for evil. Don't be like the woman who killed her children and said, God told me. That woman heard someone say, God told me, and she believed it. I remember the first time I heard that. I was in college. This girl very jovially was telling me about her relationship with Jesus. She said, you know, just the other day, Jesus and I were talking, and and he was telling me some stuff, and he's so cool. I mean, is this how it's going? And I'm I'm going, really? I never heard of this. You know, I was brand new to Christianity. I grew up in a very pseudo-Christian environment. And all of a sudden, people are walking around with their Bibles. You know, I go to college to play football. And I, as many of you know, I accidentally got a degree while I was there. I was there to play football, and that was about it. Uh, also came for the first time to hear the gospel. And people are saying things, and some of it's true and some of it's not. And this girl is talking like she and Jesus ride to work together. He does this all the time. It was, it was so crazy. He was telling me some stuff. So I'm... I walked away. I don't even remember what she said. I walked away going, okay, cool. <laughs> I guess I get to talk to Jesus too. I don't know. When, you know, when do I get to do that? The girl was a prostitute. She turned out to be a prostitute. Attending a Christian college, doing fairly well in school. I was exposed in a few months as being a prostitute. Now, that's not to say that everybody who says God told me is either a prostitute or a murderer. But all that stuff starts with an idea that is born out of a lack of willingness to really do the hard work of Bible study, to sit under sound Bible teaching and get other information. To get information that's not in the Scripture, a person would use their freedom in Christ as a covering for evil. God told me, I don't have to obey the laws of God. I obey a higher authority. Peter says here, use your freedom as bond slaves of God. You have been freed, listen to this, you have been freed to serve willingly. You've been freed to be imprisoned and love your master because your master loves you. 
He does not hate you. He's not abusive to you. He's not going to misuse you. He's not going to deceive you. He's not going to kill you. He loves you and has that which is best for you. Therefore, you now have a willing heart to serve him in a way that exhibits that which glorifies him. It's his will and you do it for his sake. He has done what he has done for your sake and his sake, and therefore you desire to do what you do for his sake. Galatians 5 verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So in particular form here, Paul helps us understand that to walk by the Spirit is to not make a covering for your evil by saying, God told me. By allowing something spiritual that's taken place in your life, specifically the freedom that you have, that you would use that in such a way that you wouldn't serve. Paul says, because you are free, now serve. You are freed, you are liberated to serve your neighbor and to love your neighbor as yourself. William Barclay has said, Christian freedom is always conditioned by Christian responsibility. Christian responsibility is always conditioned by Christian love. Christian love is the reflection of God's love. And therefore, Christian liberty can rightly be summed up in Augustine's memorable phrase, love God and do what you like. You love that? Love God and do what you like. Barclay goes on to say, the Christian is free because he is the slave to God. Christian freedom does not mean being free to do as we like. It means being free to do as we ought. And as Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if you are to follow me, take up the cross, deny yourself and follow me. There is a denial of self. There will be times where you want things you shouldn't want. And in that moment when you recognize that you are a slave to the good master, you want what he wants. And so you subject yourself, you yield yourself to his great desires, and ultimately you find that to be pleasing. You are freed now to do what you ought. Why, though, would someone have no interest in serving God? Because he or she is a slave to sin. A slave to darkness, a slave to the law, a slave to deception, and a slave to the penalty of the law. His love of self prevents his ability to obey the first commandment, that he love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's constantly enraptured with what he wants. How can I be blessed? How can I enjoy what I want to enjoy? How can I be served? When you experienced that freedom, though, you were so overjoyed and liberated that you wanted to serve the one who set you free. You longed to serve the one who saved you from captivity to sin. When you experience that freedom, you understand and eagerly embrace the full design and delight 
of your life, and that is to serve your loving master. D. Edmund Hebert has said, Those now freed are wholly his and bound to be doing his will. The use of such a strong term, slaves, does not imply involuntary servitude for the believer, but stresses the unconditional, absolute obedience due his master. The master's will is that his servants should be dutiful citizens. They find liberty in faithfully doing his will. End quote. But this is more than just obeying the government and staying out of jail. It's doing good for God's sake because it is his will and it is also the will of the one who has been freed by God unto his will. We yield to his will because we are freed to do so. But this is by no means a free will. It is a new will that is bound by God's will. The believer is now free to obey God and man because he has a new will given to him by God and it is determined to please that God. As R.C. Sproul has said, you have a new set of desires. and They're driven by the desires of God. And yes, because of the flesh, because of that element of unredeemed humanity, you will, at least from time to time throughout the day, have desires that are not pleasing to him. And Paul expresses that dilemma in Romans 7. But he doesn't just leave us with a dilemma. So then, on the one hand, I, with my mind, am serving the law of God, Paul says. Yet on the other, with the flesh... I'm serving the law of sin. What then? What then? Where is the hope? Who will free me then from this body of death? Thanks be to the Lord for Jesus Christ. Our hope is not here. As you know, and as we've talked about, we are aliens, we are foreigners, we are sojourners in this land. We ultimately find our hope in heaven. But for now, we are called unto obedience to the master who loves us and protects us to obey a government regardless of the government's condition. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, Paul says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. A man in the ministry, why does he do what he does? Why, why does he embrace and, and even enjoy all the tasks that a pastor is called to do? He is a bond slave. He is a slave to the people, not just to the Lord. Let me read it again. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. This has to be the mindset of of any man who would shepherd the flock of God, that they would understand that that is to be their mindset as well. Your life can't be about you. It can't be ultimately about your family. It really ultimately starts with you being devoted to your family, that your family would become faithful slaves of Jesus Christ by serving in the church of Jesus Christ. And there's great joy in that. That's not a burdensome reality. That's not cumbersome. That's greatly joyous. It's an eternal event. It's expressive of our citizenship in heaven. Point number six, the method. The method. The method of submission. What does it look like? You might call it the application of submission. 
Very simple. Four things. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Here Peter shows how really we are to put this into practice. This is the takeaway in principle and in practical terms. They're all hard attitudes. Every one of these. They're all hard attitudes. They're desires of the heart as displayed in very deliberate practice. Honor all people. In James chapter 2, verse 1, James says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He goes on then to explain that when a man comes into your assembly and he's dressed well, you do not give him favoritism. And when a man who comes in who's clearly poor, you do not look lesser upon him than you would the other man. Why? Because God is not a God of favoritism. Down in verse 8, James says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of it all. The Pharisee would look at other people and say, Oh, I would never do those things. I would never commit those sins. James says, if you violated one law, you violated it all. That's the principle by which you and I should operate when we think about other people and how we would honor them. In the next chapter, chapter 3, James says in verse 9, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. Speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. When you see a person, your first thought should be made in the image of God. The creation of God. God who is your creator, but also your father and your savior. He created that person. That's what you ought to be thinking. You shouldn't have higher thoughts about someone or lesser thoughts about someone else, but have thoughts of compassion and there should be honor. This is a tough call because certain people are not worthy of honor, but neither are you or I. Our conduct leads to honor, and it should, and there is a natural and logical relationship between those things. But when you think about people, you should do all that you can to honor all people. Next, he says, love the brethren. This is Peter's word for the church. Love the body of Christ. Love the church. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's the standard. Do you love the brethren as Christ loves the brethren? Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's the love you should have for every single person in this room. It's one thing to honor people. It's quite another to be willing to die for them. That's the standard. Next, you are to fear God. You want to put this into practice, this command that Peter has given us to submit to governing authorities? Well, honor all people, love the body, but fear God. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You are to fear the Lord. You say, well, why would we fear the Lord? We don't, you know, wrath is not ahead of us 
we don't need to be concerned about his condemnation. That's right. And the person who has no fear of God should be concerned about condemnation. If he's not concerned about his conduct, if he thinks there are no consequences for his conduct, he is the perfect candidate for considering fearing God because he thinks there are no consequences for his actions. So he lives the way he lives, believing that ultimately nothing's going to happen. I keep hearing these warnings. This is why discipline in the home is so important. I have this discussion with my sons regularly. The discipline that God has commanded me to provide for you is ultimately to result in your fear of God, that you have a little slice of hell right here on earth. You would understand that pain is brought couched in love as an effort that you would ultimately experience a complete absence of all discipline because you trust in the one who received it for you. That He received your punishment in full for you, that you would trust in him and your life would prove that. You would so long to love the brethren and to honor all people that you would see that that stems from a right fear of God. In Romans chapter 3, toward um, the middle of the the chapter, after having explained that there is no one who is righteous, Paul gives this rather descriptive expression of what it is to be an unbeliever. And then he says in verse 18, after talking about the condemnation under which they sit, he says in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear Him. Peter says we must. And then last, in terms of a practical command given us by Peter that we would obey this text, honor authority. Honor all authority. You know this from previously in the text. You're called to uh, submit to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him. How about that police officer that uh, interrupts your day? You know the feeling. You see the red lights in the rearview mirror, but automatically you begin thinking about Is my seatbelt on? How fast was I really going? How can I convince him it was actually less? You know, my speedometer is way off. This car is so old. You know, nothing on it works. You got all kinds of reasons why he's wrong. I'll never forget years ago, I got stopped for speeding, and I was speeding, and I lied. And I told the officer, your machine is off. You know, when's the last time you had it calibrated? You know, there was a time where everybody was saying, just ask the police officer to show you the certificate of calibration on his speed gun, you know, and then you can take him to, come on, I was speeding. The guy was not very happy with me, of course. Before he and I left the parking lot, I stopped him. I was in my early 20s. And um, I, I said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? He said, I'm really in a hurry. You know, he wanted to get away from, you know, the liar. I said, um, I, just, I just want to ask you to forgive me. I, I lied to you. I was speeding. You know it. I know it. And he said, hold on. He turned off his car. He said, what would you say? <laughs> <laughs> I lied. I was speeding. I disobeyed the law. I was dishonorable to you. I, I'm a Christian. I, I, I want to confess to you that I was, I was wrong. He said, just a minute got out of his car, he came over to my car, and he said, "Um, I want you to go to court. I can't let you out of this ticket. I said, I I don't want out of the ticket. I I, I, I was speeding. He said, I know, I know, but nobody's ever done this, so i got to do something about it. (laughs) I want you to show up that day, and uh, at the the hearing, you know, you see the date on there, and and I won't be there. 
I said, really, I'm not trying to get out of the ticket. I mean, I deserve the ticket. I, I, I should pay for it. No, no, no. I want to do this. I want to do this. I said, okay, all right. I guess I'll obey you. <laughs> so I show up, find my place, my chair. I sit and I look over there um, just below where the judge is. You know, seated there is that police officer. And I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be worse than what it would have been if I just paid the ticket. Why is he doing this to me? He tricked me. Stinking government. So in the moment, I decided I've got to live with this. It's my fault. I probably should have just paid the ticket. I don't know. You've got all kinds of stuff going through my head. And um, <laughs> so I walked over to him. And I said, um, hi, officer. Do you remember me? And he said, no. I'm going, oh, I knew it. Um, I'm Todd Barnett. I, you know, was speeding one day. I lied and, you know, told you I wasn't. He said, oh, I remember you. Sit down. <laughs> this is not good. Well, when the judge called for me to come up and then called for the officer who was on duty, he didn't stand, which meant that the judge dismissed my case wasn't looking for that. I wasn't hoping for that. I was ready to pay for it. I was ready to, to proceed as the law requires. And he somehow, I guess, is given flexibility to handle that however he wants. But my point in all of this is that at some point, you and I have to be willing to acknowledge that the details of the law matter. The details of the law matter. And you and I are not given freedom as a covering for evil. And when we have attempted to cover evil with our freedom, we must do something about that. We must respond to the work of the Holy Spirit through the teaching of the Word of God to honor authority. There is no place for dishonoring authority in the Christian life. One commentator said, the king must be so honored that the love of the brotherhood and the fear of God be not violated. You see how that works? So you fear God, you love the brotherhood, you're trying to honor all people, but you violate the laws of the land. And what does that do? It rips the rug right out underneath your testimony. And you've got no testimony anymore. And people know. People know. Well, the expression of this in Acts 16 is with Paul, and I won't read you the whole text, but just to kind of help you see how Paul lived this out. In Acts 16, there was a slave girl creating all kinds of problems for Paul and Silas. And, uh, you know, declaring, these are, these are men, these are servants of the Most High God. She herself is demon-possessed, and Paul tolerates it for days. And eventually, he says, it says he gets greatly annoyed. So there are situations where it's okay to get greatly annoyed. This was one of them. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said in slanderous tone and dishonesty with false accusations. These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being 
Romans. Well, ultimately, they persuaded those in control to jail uh, Paul and Silas. While they were there, like many of you know the story here, ultimately they are released, but not before experiencing a great deal of difficulty, willing to undergo beatings, great, severe beatings. In fact, they sang while in the stockade. Can you imagine singing hymns in the stockade, having, having been beaten? This might cause many to question their faith, to question the Lord, to question whether or not they should submit to governing authorities. But it says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And you know, many of you, how the story goes. The jailer assumes that Paul and Silas are heading for the hills, and so he goes to kill himself, and Paul says, stop, we're still here. Why? Why? Because he's submitting to governing authorities. He's submitting to those sent by the king. It was still the law that required him to stay there. And what is the result? What is the result here? You see that there is a tremendous result. In verse 35, now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial. So He demands a further hearing. Why? Because he is calling them actually to adhere to the law that they say they serve, but he wanted further opportunity to display God's will. Why would the jailer, though, have any interest in this situation at all? What was the effect on the jailer? Go back to verse 31, and it says, They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Because Paul and Silas chose to obey the government, to submit themselves to the laws of the land, and in so doing, to honor the Lord. The message, what was the message? The message ultimately resulted in those in governing authority, in governing positions to respect them, and it silenced their slander. The mindset of not using their freedom as a covering for evil, they hadn't done any evil. But even with that, they were still willing in their freedom to subject themselves to the government. And the method to which they held was a willingness to honor all people, to honor the jailer, but also to love the brethren, to be concerned about the brethren. Did you know that just before and just after this text, a woman named Lydia, who is the first Christian in that area, is mentioned. And just after this passage, what happens? They go first to Lydia's house to rejoice with Lydia, their sister, in Christ, that they would love her, that she would have an opportunity to love them. 
And of course, they show their fear for God while they honor the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your word and its perfection. And we ask that you would produce in us this morning a deep devotion to being willing to submit ourselves to governing authorities, as odd as that might seem in the day and age in which we live, where the government still is designed and really is useful for our protection, we ask that you would help us to remember that, but not let that be our motive. Our motive is that we submit for your sake, that you, Lord, would be exalted, that your will would be done, that we would acknowledge that it is your will that we would be bond slaves to you and not use our freedom as a covering for evil, that we would never justify sin by saying God told me or even saying something like I'm free from the law of God, therefore I do what I want. But Father, help us to delight in you that you would give us the desires of our heart, that our desire would be what you have desired for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.